This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 2nd, 2021. I'm Megan Cantwell. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, a segment from the AAAS meeting in February. I speak with Pamela Soltis about how natural collections are a valuable resource in understanding future disease outbreaks. Then, producer Joel Goldberg talks with researcher Katerina Schmack about what a hearing test in mice tells us about the link between dopamine and hallucinations. This week, we have another highlight from the 2021 AAAS annual meeting. I'm here with Pamela Soltis, who spoke on a panel about how access to biological collections can be used as a better way to understand emerging diseases. Thanks so much for joining me, Pam. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. When I think of a specimen, I'm usually thinking of something that's in a drawer with a tag associated with it or maybe like something in a fridge. But your talk discussed how there are so many different layers of data that are associated with just one specimen. Could you talk about that? Yeah, this is something that we now call the extended specimen concept. And it's something that's been emerging for probably a decade or more. But if you think about a natural history specimen, and we can think about a bat, for example, that bat would be in a vertebrate collection, maybe a mammal's collection. But that preserved bat might have a number of other pieces that could all be related to that. And we can connect those things up informatically. So for example, the bat specimen might also have some tissues that are located in a genetic resources repository. And those genetic resources, whether DNA or tissues or whatever, could be used to generate DNA sequences looking for viruses or other pathogens. And then when those sequences are developed, those sequences could be deposited in GenBank or another repository, but they could be linked back to that specimen through a unique identifier. It's so interesting thinking about a specimen being found cataloged, and then it really just has a life of its own. Do you have any examples of maybe a specimen being collected and its uses are way past what they initially intended when they collected it? 
Well, I think that's true really of all of our natural history collections today. Many of our specimens date back at least 100 years, maybe 200 or 300 years for some of our oldest collections. So when they were collected, they were collected as an attempt by a local biologist to understand the biota of an area. But now over time, these collections are being used for all sorts of things that could not possibly have been anticipated by the original collector. So we gain ecological information from our specimens by being able to take the locality information where that specimen was collected and apply that to global GIS information. And we can understand something about the ecology of that particular location. And of course, this is using tools that were not dreamt of back when the specimens were collected. And likewise, we can actually gain DNA samples and DNA sequences from many of our museum specimens. So I'm a botanist and a lot of our work actually uses herbarium specimens, some of which may be over a hundred years old in order to get genetic information from a broad range of specimens and species that would be impossible for us to go and collect on a global scale now. As techniques have advanced, you've kind of been revisiting some of these older specimens and collections and gaining new information. Yeah, and it's fascinating. So we've done some trips to, for example, the New York Botanical Garden or the Missouri Botanical Garden, some of our largest botanical gardens and repositories of plant specimens in herbaria. And we're pulling specimens for samples for DNA analysis. And sometimes those same specimens that we've pulled have already been annotated for use in some other sort of study, like they were used in a pollen study or they were used for some other sort of chemical study. So every time you work with one of these specimens, you attach a new tag to it and the specimen then ends up actually having a history of all of its uses. Even though some of these were collected decades ago, have people been pretty thorough and systematic about pinning it back to the original specimen? Is there an easy way for you to see all this connected information right now? Not yet. So it's really a concept that's developing and the broader community, both in the U.S. and actually the global community, we're working toward trying to develop what we call the cyber infrastructure that would allow for all of this to actually work. So we need to have the computational framework to allow for the connections among these different pieces of information. And we need to actually even develop the system conceptually as to how we might do it. So there's a lot of discussion about what the best form of an identifier would be. We need to have a national cyber infrastructure, a system of uh, computational resources and personnel and hardware and databases and all of this that would allow for us to make the connections. But then we actually have to do the databasing and, and everything for all of these pieces and apply identifiers so that we can pull all of this stuff together. With the goal of all of these things being interconnected, how do you envision it changing how people are studying emerging diseases or pandemics in the future? One of the big questions that we're still being faced with is where did the SARS-CoV-2 virus make the jump from bats or whatever other organisms to human populations. And it's not really possible using our current resources to be able to use our natural history specimens to contribute to that discussion. But if we did have this sort of interconnected set of 
extended specimen information, we would be able to quite easily go in and say, okay, where does the SARS-CoV-2 virus occur? Where are its hosts? And what species do those host organisms interact with? And we could pull all of this information together just, you know, nearly instantaneously. And there's a great example of how this has been used in the past, this whole process at the University of New Mexico in particular. There's a very large sample of mammal DNAs and tissues. And when there was an outbreak of the hantavirus there a couple of decades ago, they used their natural history collections to track the distribution of the rodents that carried the virus, and then they could actually predict where there might be outbreaks in the future. It was incredibly valuable as not just a way of tracing where the virus had been, but also predicting where it might go, where it might appear next. I feel like that's such an advantage to these collections is just how far back in time they go and how you can really see the history of change in all of these different environments through time, which seems like it'd definitely be helpful for understanding where future pandemics or jumps from animals to humans might occur. Yeah, we really need to keep in mind that these large-scale epidemics and in the current case, the pandemic, really arise because humans are encroaching into the natural environments where animals that don't normally come into contact with people are now coming into contact with people. And this is how these various viruses can make the jump from their natural hosts into humans. The more we understand about the distributions of species and their ecologies and their various other attributes, whether from natural history collections or from other sorts of biological information, the much better prepared we will be to identify potential new sources. So by understanding more about the distributions of coronaviruses, for example, they're highly diverse. They occur across many different bat species. Many bat species will bear many different types of viruses, of even coronaviruses, because so many coronaviruses cause human health problems. Understanding the distributions of the bats that carry those would be incredibly important and valuable. Of course, we also have to keep in mind that the bats are incredibly important parts of natural ecosystems, and we wouldn't want to be taking out on the bats our frustration with the viruses as they infect the human population. With the pandemic, do you feel like there is more interest in funding or movement towards this digitization of these collections? Yeah, I really do think that we are gaining a lot of ground and attention for how these sorts of collections can be used. One of the classic examples that collections people have tended to present in support of maintaining and caring for collections is the fact that they can help with instances of human health problems. And here we are publishing the National Academy's report during a pandemic. So it was perfect, horrible timing that really exemplifies what we think could be done on a much greater scale with better attention, greater attention to collections and all of their ancillary data. We also see that there are opportunities for growing our collections, for improving our collections. The National Science Foundation has funded 
some grants as part of their COVID research to improve our understanding of bat distributions based on natural history collection data. And there's another really amazing project that's going on. It started before the pandemic, but it's about bats of the world and it's contributing really valuable information now in the context of the pandemic too. So an added step to making this information easily accessible is also collecting more information in areas that probably underrepresented in these natural collections. Yes, exactly. And even when we do have collections, you know, we may have collections, but they might not have been touched by scientists in 50 years or maybe a century. And so there are aspects of maybe their names that need to be updated given better information that we have now about how things are related to each other. Or maybe there are ways to update their location information and just being able to provide that additional curation to the specimens we already have can make that information that much more valuable. I'm really excited to see all the growth that will happen in this field in the coming years. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Pamela Soltis is a distinguished professor and curator in the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. She is also the director of the University of Florida Biodiversity Institute. You can find a link to her National Academy of Sciences report on biological collections at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Next up, Joel Goldberg talks with researcher Katerina Schmack about the connection between dopamine, hallucinations, and mental illness. Now, before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, You must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org slash news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org slash news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. We'll speak with Katerina Schmack, research investigator at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Katerina's new paper in science examines a subject that might sound a little trippy, hallucination in mice. Hi, Katerina. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So this is exciting. We're talking about this weird concept around mice and their brain processes. How do we know what mice are thinking? Can you explain the purpose of this study? Why do we care how mice hallucinate? Yeah, that's a great question. As you might know, hallucinations are false perceptions of a non-existent thing, such as hearing a voice when no one is talking. And why we are interested in hallucination is they are a central symptom of psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia. And because these disorders are often devastating and they cannot be treated satisfyingly, 
we wanted to dig into the neural mechanisms related to hallucinations. So something psychiatrists have long suspected is that an excess of the neurotransmitted dopamine induces hallucinations, but it has remained somewhat of a mystery why and how dopamine would lead to hallucinations. Dopamine is well known for its role in processes like reward responses and movement control, but not really for its role in perception. Are we talking about actual hallucinations or something else? We actually have no means to know whether a mouse is hallucinating or not. What we are trying to do is to elicit an experience in the mice that is more or less similar to hallucinations in humans. So what we are measuring is not so much an actual hallucination, but rather a model of hallucinations. In the paper, you explain that it's really hard to study psychotic symptoms in animals because they can't actually tell you what they're experiencing. How did you approach this challenge in your experiment? We train them to tell us what they are experiencing. And we not only train them to tell us what they are hearing, but we also train them to tell us how confident they are in what they are hearing. What we realized was that a hallucination is not only a perception that is quote-unquote false, but also one that is made with the same confidence as quote-unquote a true perception. Essentially, you gave them a quiz, right? An auditory quiz. What we do in this test, we use auditory stimuli, which are brief tone signals that are embedded in a noisy background. And we then play these tone signals over the background randomly on half of the trials. And on the other half of the trials, we only present the noisy background. And then we asked them whether they heard the signal or not. We asked mice to go to one of two choice ports. So they had to poke their nose into a small opening where they would get a reward if they were correct. This allowed us to know what the mice had perceived. And then we also wanted to measure the confidence. And to do this, we basically trained them to wait for the reward. So we trained them to invest time for a reward by simply not giving the reward right away, but waiting for an unpredictable interval of time. And it has to make a decision how much time it is willing to wait before it pokes out and starts a new trial. And the simple idea is that the more confident the mouse is, the longer it will wait for a reward. What we would expect if their choices indeed reflect their perception, we would expect that they would report a tone very often when the tone was very loud, but then this proportion would go down when the tone was more difficult to detect and was quieter. How did the mice do on the quiz? The louder the tone was, the more likely the mouse was to go to the correct port and um, get a reward. And importantly, what we also saw, even if we did not embed a tone, even if we only had pure noise trials, the mice still reported having heard a tone on a substantial proportion of trials. On quite a few trials, they did so with high confidence. And so this meant that we were actually able to elicit what we call hallucination-like perception. Did people take the same quiz as the mice? We wanted to know whether our measure of hallucination-like perception in mice had to do anything with real hallucinations in people. So what we did is we had a version of the task that was very similar to the mouse task, but that we could run on a computer and we could recruit participants that would perform this task online. All right. Sounds like a great online game. <laughs> yes. We actually got quite a few participants who were willing to do this task. 
220 people, we asked them for their daily experiences with hallucinations. And what is important to know here is that hallucinations are actually not confined to psychotic disorders, but what we see there is quite a substantial degree of hallucinations in the general populations. And that means that there are quite a few people who experience hallucinations without having the diagnosis of a psychotic disorder. So we're all out there, you know, hallucinating from time to time. That's exactly right. People who experience a lot of hallucinations, they are also at higher risk for later developing psychosis. And so we think that studying hallucinations in this general population provides a way to gain insights into hallucinations that are also relevant for psychosis. I think we are all hallucinating and some of us are more and others are less. That's a great concept. <laughs> the right way to put it. We had people do the task, so it was very similar, but we also played tones. They sounded a little different because we, we slowed them down. We adjusted the frequency range to the human hearing range. And so we played these tones and it was the same concept. People had to do a quiz and tell us whether they heard a tone or not. And then we asked them how confident they were in their perception. And in people, it's easy. We simply directly asked them, how confident were you? and ask them to position a cursor on a slider. I'll play some of these tones right now. This is the high signal sound with background. Here's the medium. Here's the low. And then here's without. Those quieter sounds seem pretty hard to distinguish from just noise. I wouldn't blame people who guessed wrong on those. Yes, that's, that's right. And that's actually what we want. We want them to guess wrong on them on some trials. So I listened a lot to these sounds. And what I experienced, the more you listen to them, the harder it is to really tell whether there was something. I am sure that I hallucinated some of the signals. At some point, you start hearing what you're expecting to hear from time to time, even if it's not there. How do you know how it applies to specific disorders? So we simply used a questionnaire that um, someone developed and validated. This questionnaire asks questions like, do you sometimes hear sounds when there's nothing around to explain them? And then what people have to do, they have to say yes or no, and they have to say how often this occurs and how distressing they find these experiences. This questionnaire gives us a number that is a measure of the tendency towards these hallucination-like experiences in daily life. And what we did is we measured this number and correlated it with the number of these hallucination-like perceptions in our task. And what we found is that the stronger the tendency towards hallucinations in daily life, the more hallucination-like perceptions in our task participants would report. Hmm, that's a really fascinating connection. So if we want to get back to the mice for a second, yes, could you explain how you tracked the mice's brain activity during the signaling task? We measured and manipulated dopamine in the brain of mice while they were doing the task. And here we focused on the striatum. In, in patients with psychotic symptoms, it has been found that there is an increased dopamine turnover in this region of the brain. And so what we did, we first measured dopamine using a technique called fiber photometry. We put biological sensors into the striatum of these mice, and these sensors emit light whenever dopamine binds to them. We first just measure lights that are emitted by these biological sensors. So these are proteins that we can express, and these proteins simply emit fluorescence whenever dopamine binds to them. And what we can then do is put a fiber on top of that, glass fiber, 
And then we connect these glass fibers to a photodetector. And we can measure this ongoing fluorescence as a measure of ongoing dopamine activity. With this fiber photometry, we found that dopamine was higher just before the mouse would report a hallucination-like perception. And so what this suggests is that increased dopamine predicts hallucination-like perception. Of course, what we then wanted to know is whether increased dopamine actually caused this hallucination-like perception. We used a technique called optogenetics to manipulate dopamine activity. And so for optogenetics, we take mice that have a protein called channelrhodopsin in their dopamine neurons, this amazing protein that whenever you shine a light on it, it elicits neural activity. So what this allows us to do, we, we can then implant a fiber on top of this and now send light into the brain through this fiber. And what this allows us to do is to increase dopamine activity in the region where we implanted the fiber. And what we found was that mice indeed report more hallucination-like perceptions. And importantly, and that was really nice, this was no longer the case when we pre-treated mice with haloperidol, which is an antipsychotic drug that blocks dopamine transmission. So it makes a lot of sense. When we increase dopamine, we find more hallucination-like perceptions. But then when we block dopamine transmission, we cannot replicate this effect. So you mentioned haloperidol. And also there was a part of the experiment where you gave the mice ketamine. Yes. Could you say more about how psychoactive drugs factored into the mice experiment? So here we used ketamine just as a way to increase our confidence that our task had something to do with hallucinations. And we know from uh, human studies that if we take ketamine as humans, we have something that is similar to psychosis. We experience transient symptoms and weird experiences that are aching to uh, psychotic symptoms. And so what we did, we simply treated mice with ketamine and then looked at their hallucination-like perception. And what we found was that ketamine did increase hallucination-like perception, which was just another way for us to make sure that hallucination-like perception is a good model for hallucinations. How did you get at the mechanism connecting dopamine and imagined noises? To address this question, we devised a computational model of Bayesian perception. Bayesian perception is a theory that describes the idea that our perception results from both the sensory input, but also from our prior expectations. In this model, hallucination-like perception could arise from two distinct prior expectations. One kind was related to reward, and the other kind was related to perception. And strikingly, we found that dopamine in the striatum resembled either one or the other, depending on where in the striatum we looked. Dopamine in the ventral striatum seemed to encode more these reward expectations, and dopamine in the tail of the striatum seemed to encode perceptual expectations. So you're really looking at the circuitry in the mice brain. Yes, that's exactly right. And so increased dopamine biases the integration of these inputs towards relying more on prior expectations. And that is how hallucinations arise. How does this translate to humans, especially in regard to mental illness? We think that this model of hallucinations opens up a new opportunity for hopefully advancing the treatment for psychotic disorders. And so in patients, this model of hallucinations might serve as an objective measure of these very subjective symptoms. We hope that in the future, this can be used to predict clinical outcomes or to guide even treatment decisions. And on the other hand, in mice, we hope that this model of hallucinations can be used to further investigate the neurobiology relevant to psychotic disorders. And we hope that this will be used 
to identify new treatment targets and eventually test new drugs for psychotic disorders. We already have a variety of drugs that target dopamine. And I think what we now can do with this framework is to really look beyond dopamine and look, for instance, at the upstream regulators of dopamine and then see how they affect hallucinations and see whether we can target them to treat hallucinations in a better way than currently. I think that is a very important future avenue. Thanks so much, Katerina. Thanks for having me. Katerina Schmack is a research investigator at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. You can find a link to her paper at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. On the site, you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Joel Goldberg and Megan Cantwell with production help from Podigy and Sarah Crespi. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.